We said last week, um, as we started in the book of Jonah, the kind of what framed it was this quote, when I watch the working of my own heart, I'm compelled to write this, I am Jonah. And that's what we said last week, looking at those opening verses of, of uh, this, this book, Jonah. And, and the book of Jonah, it's one of the, called the Minor Prophets, we talked about this last week, but unlike the other 11 of these short books in this category of Minor Prophets, this one's not really about the prophecy as much as it's about the prophet. And so there's, it's not this, these, these words of announcing some future for Israel. That's not really the focus here. What, what this is really about, it's a story about this prophet. And, it's, and through that, it's a story about God. And so we learn about ourselves in this story, looking at Jonah. We also and supremely learn about the Lord. Um, and so last week, we learned some things about ourselves. And we, we learned and saw our tendency... Uh, to to cast off God's authority in, over our lives and to resent His character and His compassion and and so we saw that through Jonah and again I think if we're honest with ourselves we see uh, that in ourselves and so today we're going to see the see the God who is willing to do whatever it takes to to bring us back to Him and to pursue us and so what what will God do to pursue us to get our attention to waken us up to bring us back. And again, the answer is whatever it takes. And, and so Jonas, we left him, Jonas heading in the wrong direction, physically, spiritually, in every way. He, and yet God graciously, as we'll see today, intervenes and turns him around. And, 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 he, and he matches every move, every wrong move of Jonah with God's own move. And that's what we'll see today. So the same God who pursued, pursued Jonah when he resentfully ran from him, he pursues you today. And so when we left Jonah last week, he, he's on the boat, he's asleep, he, thought he's got, he thinks he's gotten away with disobedience to God, and, you, and, and just when we ended last week, you know there's a but coming. This, is not, this can't be how the story ends. He rides, just sails off into the sunset, uh, and there is there's a but coming here, and we'll see it. So the first thing we saw last week, Jonah, uh, we, are, we are Jonah when we resentfully run. This week... Uh, we need God who desperately pursues. And, and that's what we're going to look at today. Look at verse 1. Let's just pick it up uh, at the beginning again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. First thing I want us to see about our God who, who relentlessly pursues us is this, is that he is not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. God pursues us, and one of the means he uses to pursue us is his patience. When, when we run from Him, He doesn't just immediately cut us off and reel us back in right away. No, he, he lets us go away from Him so that we'll feel the full weight of our need for Him. That's what He's doing with Jonah here. and It's part of God's loving discipline and His severe mercy to not stop us right away. And so He lets Jonah go out. You think about all the things God could have done to keep Jonah from getting as far as He did. He could have made sure that the ship to Joppa was, had already sailed out the, next, the day before, 
wasn't in that port and wasn't there when he arrived. He could have made sure that the boat was full. There was no room left for Jonah. Sorry, you're going to have to wait six months. He could have made sure that he could have arranged for some robbers to steal uh, Jonah's money so that he didn't have the fare to pay for the ticket or, or some thorn bush to grow up along the path and snag his money bag and all his money disappeared. God could have done any of those things and a thousand more things to stop him sooner. But in God's wisdom, the, the best response isn't always the, the, the immediate response. He's not a helicopter parent, I know that. Uh, caricature that we're, we're aware of. He knows his children need to experience the consequences for their decisions, not for their harm, but for their help and their good. He's patient. He's not, he's not in a rush with us. He often waits, allows us to experience some of the fallout for our sin. Sometimes he lets us go way off course so that when we finally see our sin for what it is, we're ready to return to him. So they just this is the first thing. This is part of God's pursuit of us is His patience. He's not in a hurry. I know we think sin it it, it can be fun for a while, and and but but do not be deceived. The scripture makes it very clear. God is not mocked. There, the Jonah is about to find that out the very hard way, and that brings us to the second thing. And this is where we really get into where we left off last week. Second thing God does in pursuing us is He stirs us to wake us. He stirs us up. He stirs things up to wake us up. Verse 4. But, there's that. There's what we're waiting for. We knew it was coming. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So the, the Lord hurled. He, he threw or He flung. It's the same word uh, used when Saul hurled the spirit at David. So this isn't, this isn't me, you know, tossing a water bottle to Ron, and he's not paying attention, so I've got to whack him in the head. Now, this would be me just, you know, trying to hurt him, trying to hit him with as much force as I could and to, and to take him out. This is, this is the idea of this word. It, it contains the notion of sudden, violent force. So the Lord just, out of nowhere, is kind of the, the idea here, just brought this and slung this storm, this wind at this ship and on this water. And so it, it must have been a very intense storm because you have these seasoned uh, sailors, these professional sailors who've just been hardened to all the dangers of life at sea. And there, though, they're panicked. They're scared to death. And so they initiate the, the first ever interfaith prayer meeting in Scripture. And so they, each one of these guys, they start crying out to their, to their own God, asking them to wake up and to help them do something. So verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And then they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they start dumping everything they can, everything that's not you know, fastened down. They start ditching it into the water, just trying to lighten the boat so that it stays afloat. And, and again, you, we said this last week, but all that stuff they're throwing overboard is, is how they made money. All their profit is gone. They're just casting it into the sea just to survive. And all the while... Jonah sleeping below deck. Verse 5, again, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. That, that little description, he's fast asleep. The, the, the word doesn't, it's not like a little light power nap where you just kind of, oh, you know, just wake up. No, he's out. He's in deep, deep sleep, sound sleep. And clearly with this massive storm raging out there. So he, he's out. But God, God uses the storm that 
that, to threaten the boat, to frighten the sailors who then go and wake him up ultimately to turn him around. So you see what God is doing. He's, he's stirring things up to wake Jonah up. He's pursuing Jonah. And the, the wind and the waves, like Psalm 148 says, they're his servants and they're doing his bidding, doing everything to get Jonah awake in every sense of that word, uh, awake. Jonah thought he had escaped God's presence. He tried to run, but he could not hide from God. God was with him every step of the way, every row of the oar. God was there. He was working. He was using all these means. Wind, water, everything else in creation is, is at God's disposal, our sovereign God's disposal. And this is not just true for Jonah. This is true for us. He uses things like storms to get our attention, to stop us when we're running, to, to wake us up when we're sleeping. Uh, you famously, I know last year, talking so much about Martin Luther and the Reformation, you know, many of you know his story, but God used that lightning storm to, to stop him in his tracks and to, 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 to alter the course of his life. And so it may, maybe God uses literal storms in your life, and you can testify to that, but it, it may be some other, other storm, other circumstances. God has all kinds of of tools in his toolbox to, to, to use. He, he could use the storm of fierce and just threatening circumstances in your life or of, or of sudden death of a loved one or sickness and disease or financial ruin or conflict or a career implosion. And he's infinitely creative. Um, now, I, listen, I'm not at all suggesting that every difficulty in your life and every storm and every well, howl of the wind, freezing temperatures, everything... Is, is in your life because of God's discipline for your disobedience. That's not, please don't hear that. Uh, not at all. Storms come into our lives for all kinds of reasons. But, but when we, we should always at some point when, when these adversities come, we, we, we come to the place and ask God, what, what do you want to teach me through this trial? What are you, what are you up to? What are you doing here? And we, that, that's true. God is using everything for our good. And so, dear brother and sister, also listen to this. God never sends sends storms in your life to pay you back for your sin. You hear me? He never sends storms to pay you back for your sin. They are never designed for retribution. He he does send them for the purpose of restoration. That's it. And so he pursues us through them when we're running from him. He doesn't use them to pay us back for our sin, but to bring us back from our sin. He does that all the time. Jesus has already paid for your sin in full. There's nothing left to be done, no debt left to pay, count settled, you're done. And that's what we're here to celebrate as we come to the table this morning. It has all been done, it's all been accomplished. He's, he's not reserved a little bit of anger that he takes out on you every once in a while by stirring up you know, trials to punish you. That is not it. It is only and always for our good. He went, Jesus has already gone into the storm of God's wrath for you and has, and has borne it all. And that's, again, what we remember. There is no longer any wrath in the storm left for you. Only the love of the Father for who pursues you and wants nothing but your eternal good. But God does lovingly use storms to get our attention and to turn us back and to wake us up. And so does, does, um, does He have your attention? Is, are you running from him? Are, are there wind and is there wind and waves swirling around you right now? Is God wanting to wake you up?
Or does it feel like smooth sailing right now, even though you're running from God? Just wait. They will come. So that's the second thing. God stirs us up to wake us up. Third thing that we see about our God who relentlessly pursues us is that He won't allow our sin to be neatly contained. Never works like that. In God's wisdom, he, as He pursues us, he, he allows us and others to suffer because of our sin. And we see that clearly in this story. So these experienced sailors, they're scared to death and, and they're desperately trying to keep the boat from capsizing so they're ditching all the cargo, all of their, all of their uh, profits over the side. And just a side note, don't think that, um, that these guys were simply innocent bystanders here, these, these other sailors. Like there are commentators who talk about this. Like they're just unlucky and they got caught between this runaway prophet and his deity and, and it's just unfortunate. No, their idolatry qualifies them to be the just objects of God's wrath. They're idolaters. So they're not, it's not like they're innocent in this. But, God, but as we'll see, God's after them too in love. He's, he's pursuing them as he's pursuing Jonah. But don't miss the fact that it, it, it is Jonah's responsibility. Uh, disobedience that's directly responsible for endangering their lives and every and those lives are, of those around him are suffering because of Jonah's decision to run from God and to disobey the Lord's word to him. Their lives are threatened. Their money was lost. And and again, so the storm, it didn't just touch Jonah's life and single him out. It, it affected everybody around him. And that's true for us too. We never sin in isolation. We never do. You can sin while you are alone, but you never sin alone. Your sin and disobedience always affects other people. Um, Our sin, our compromise, our deceit, our laziness, our anger, our lust, our jealousy, our unforgiveness, our our worry, all of these things, they affect others, not just ourselves. It hurts your spouse, it hurts your children, it hurts your parents, it hurts your grandchildren. Hurts your friends, it hurts your church, it hurts your community. Maybe there are people right now around you who are directly suffering on account of your disobedience to God. And maybe you realize it, maybe you don't. Maybe your sin has made you a, a very difficult person to live with in the home. Bad mother, father, um, disruptive spouse, or maybe an unfaithful friend. And your sin, it affects the church. It affects, uh, it affects us as well, if not directly, certainly indirectly. Maybe you've sinned in very direct ways against the body, but, but because of your disobedience to God in private and your secret sin, however private it is, your usefulness to God here has been muted. It, you're, you're not using your gifts like you should. And maybe you've been disqualified from office, from elder deacon because of that, and, and, and you could be serving in, in much greater ways or maybe it's just that your shame is holding you back from involvement meaningful involvement with others and so you don't really want to get too close to people because you know this secret sin that you're harboring in your life and you don't want it to come out and you want to contain it and and so you're missing you're missing out on what God intends and and there's not the fruit that God wants to bear from your life that's being born he's using other people instead of you we're, we're missing out we're affected. Um, listen, the, the greatest gift that I can give to everyone who knows me, to Brooke and Callie and Carson and Katie and Kara and, 
and um, to to um, this church family, to our staff, to elders and deacons, to this community. It's, it's being close to God. And I'm not a great giver in that way. And I have a long ways to go. But, but yes, we, we do that for God's sake. We do that for our sake. But we also do it for others. One of the greatest gives, gifts you can give anyone is, is your own holiness and close walk with God. And you know, you know the, how the spiel when you get on the airplane and they're going over all the safety instructions and they're telling you and if, if the loses cabin pressure, then you, the, the oxygen mask drop. You make sure you put yours on before you try to fasten your kids. And we know all of that. And it, again, it sounds so backwards, but we, we understand the truth of it if you think about it because how can I help my child if I'm passed out and not breathing? Well, if you're passed out spiritually, you're harming those around you. And for many of you, people are, are struggling and dying because you're, you're really not walking with God. And God wants to use you in, your li- in their lives, but you're just barely breathing yourself. And, and so it, it has consequences. That's my point. The, that it's, uh, he, God refuses to allow our sin to be ultimately and finally just kind of neatly contained where we just have this little insulation built around our lives and we can just kind of consent without consequence and nobody else is affected. It's just me. No. God refuses to let that happen because he's so after us for our good. That's not how we want to live. And the flip side of that is what an incredible impact you can make uh, on others and those around you if you'll stop running and if you'll repent and if you'll begin saying yes to God as a new habit of your life. Not perfectly, but increasingly and sincerely. The, the Lord can use that in wonderful ways. There's great good ahead. Fourth way... God relentlessly pursues us as he uses others to challenge us. See this in verse 6. And the, so the storm's raging. Captain goes down, finds Jonah sleeping below deck. And he wakes him. What do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> so what are you thinking? Are you crazy? What are you doing sleeping? There's this incredibly strong storm raging out there. We're going to sink. And here you are sleeping below deck. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, this guy, he doesn't follow the Lord, the, the true God, the God of Israel. He doesn't. But, but God uses his pagan, idolatrous sailor, unbeliever, to rebuke Jonah. And to wake him up and to get his attention. And so at this point, we, he seems to have more faith than Jonah does. Uh, he, he, he sees the danger. He sees how desperate the situation is. He sees that there's no hope unless, unless some God intervenes here. Uh, so, again, not an informed faith, but he's, he sees his desperation. And God uses this pagan, polytheistic sea captain to awaken Jonah. Uh, Dr. Crawford uh, Loritz, he said, and I've heard others say, that God, God can hit some straight licks with crooked sticks. And this is certainly the case with this sea captain. The person God uses isn't really the issue. Every, everybody is at his disposal. 
God can use a close friend or a complete stranger. He can use a Christian or a lost person. He can use a child or an adult. He can use a pastor. He can use a complete pagan. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see God using young Samuel to, to speak to Eli, the witch at Endor, to, 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 to address Saul, to a little girl uh, gets to Peter at the fire. Uh, God uses all kinds of people in, in, in his timing. And so what, what matters is how we respond when God sends a messenger like that. Or is it going to be in humility and, or is it going to be in anger? Um, but we can't ignore God. God uses people. He uses, brings people to get our attention. That's part of his pursuit of us. Fifth, what does he do? He exposes our disobedience. He exposes our disobedience. So out of superstition, the crew starts casting lots to discover out who the guilty party is. Somebody's responsible for this storm. We've never seen anything like this. Something's going on. They understand this somehow relates to deities, and they have this superstition. So they start casting lots, which there are different methods of this, but something like this, probably a a bag with different colors of rocks. And and so they shake this bag up, and whichever one comes out first, that's the... That's the, the, the it gives some indication. So it's kind of their version of rolling the dice or, or um, uh, flipping a coin, something like that. And so even again, even these sailors, they recognize some deity, something's behind this. It's superstition, but they 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 get that. So we we know from Scripture that nothing happens by random chance. Psalm one forty eight makes this very clear. God is over everything. Even the casting of lots, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so God determines which rock falls out of the bag first, and it's Jonah's. And, and again, he, he used this. And so God, God uses this casting of lots to out Jonah to these sailors. And with all fingers pointing at him, he reluctantly confesses his true identity. Look at verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now it's amazing how God has the ability to do this, how he works like this. We can run and run and run and try to hide, and yet he will bring us again and again to the place where we finally have to tell the truth. And so he uses, he uses uh, people, he uses circumstances to, to bring these things out. He used a, a pagan pharaoh to expose uh, Abraham's lie about his wife. He used an angry brother to expose Jacob's deception to his father. He used Mordecai to expose Haman's plot to have all the Jews exterminated. He used Paul to expose Peter's hypocrisy. So, so God, God, in pursuing us, he exposes. He can expose any sin in it, of any sinner. He's not restricted. And it, and yes, it it hurts in the moment when the cover is blown off and and everything seems to just be imploding around us, and it feels like. Just it's all all over. While the reality is, there was nothing. There was just darkness and death working at work in you when you were hiding that sin. But it, but it feels like when the cover comes off, it's 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 terrible. But there's nothing better than that because it's God's loving and gracious pursuit of you to expose it, expose our disobedience. 
Even when it looks like we've gotten away with it, we haven't. It will come to lo- come to the light, uh, perhaps soon. And if not in this life, ultimately, it will at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That brings us to the sixth Sixth way God lovingly pursues us is he, he makes us face the consequences of our disobedience. Jonah knows it's all his fault. So when the sailors press him and ask him what do they do to make the seas calm again, he offers the only solution that makes any sense. Verse 12, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Same word there, violently throw him into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. But that's not what they do. At least not immediately. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So it's just getting worse, and the storm's getting harder, more difficult, and more severe. The more they row and try to, try to get to shore. And so when Jonah says, throw me overboard, these guys, they won't go along. At this point, these guys have more compassion than the prophet of God. They care more about him than he does about them. And so they make this one last-ditch dangerous effort to spare their lives. And again, this is counter to everything they know as sailors. When you're in a storm, this is true today, it was true back then. What do ships do? They go out to sea to weather the storm. They don't go towards the shore. That's the most dangerous place to be. But they have nothing else to do. Maybe some of us will survive. We can just crash onto the shore. And so they're, they're, they're last-ditch effort. But now what are they? They're in a rowing contest against God. How are they going to fare here? Um, and so, it, it, listen, it's futile to try to row against God. And so here they are. They're rowing as hard as they can, and it's like God has his pinky on the stern. And it's just like, no, it's not a problem. You're not going anywhere. And this is... Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Then, verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Just a couple things real quick about these verses. One, God's hand of correction, uh, uh, excuse me, hand of protection uh, can become his hand of correction. Um, he, he loves us too much to, to let us continue on in our path of rebelliousness and disobedience. He will make us face the consequences of running from him. And so we, we see this other places throughout Scripture, the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, and, and when they start turning against Moses and they start complaining to God, what does God do? The Lord sends snakes into the camp. And, and started biting people, and many people died as a result. This is Numbers 21. I know some of you, that's like your worst phobia is snakes. Just imagine snakes running all through these aisles and down, down the chairs. And, yeah, all right, I've lost some of you already. Okay. Um, but you think about it. Up until that time, a million people have been walking through this snake-infested wilderness, and we have not one record of anybody dying from a snake bite. I don't know, maybe somebody did. But there's no record of this. And, and yet God's hand of protection guiding them and protecting them in that snake-infested land with all these venomous vipers. 
he, 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 he uses it as a, as a hand of correction. And he sends these snakes in. And again, I'm not at all suggesting that every injury and illness and snake bite and, and uh, accident, natural disaster, is some direct intervention from God uh, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, the direct consequence of some specific act of disobedience. That's not the point at all. The Bible makes it clear there are many different reasons for, for things like that. But we must acknowledge that disobedience could be one of them. And so Jonah gets it and he says, pick me up, throw me in. I don't know why he doesn't say, or why he doesn't just jump in, but he, he tells them to hurl him into the sea. Um, second thing, I, I just the only, there's only one prayer in Jonah 1. We're going to see Jonah 2 is, is a prayer, and it's an interesting one. We'll look at it next week. But the only prayer in Jonah 1 is not Jonah, but it's these pagans. Therefore they called out to the Lord, verse 14, to Yahweh. O Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. So they call on that covenant name for God, the God of Israel, the, 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 the God of the Hebrews that Jonah confessed to fearing and to, to running from. They call on the Lord. Verse 15, they're all crying out to their own gods. But here, the same men are crying out to the God of Israel, to the true Lord of Lords. What a, what a, what a shift. And so these pagan sailors, they don't look so pagan anymore. They end of verse 14. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, you have done as it, is pleased, as it pleased you. So these guys who are actively idol-worshiping and calling out to their deities a moment ago, now they're confessing and proclaiming the absolute sovereignty of the one true God. Now, were they converted, saved? I don't think that's the point. Maybe, maybe some did truly believe in the Lord here. I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe they're just turning to the Lord in desperation, or maybe they go to Tarshish as these little baby missionaries. God cares about, and He's pursuing the people of Tarshish too. And so, I don't know. But they, but they now throw Jonah overboard, and then the sea calms. Verse fifteen. Now, this is a little bit of a funny picture to me. I'll, I confess, I have these images. Because in verse 17, it says that the fish came and gulped them up. And we'll get there in a moment. But this, that's after the sea is calm. So Jonah hits the water, and this tempestuous, this angry, violent sea becomes a stagnant pond. And I can just think Jonah thinking something like, Phew. okay, maybe this was just a test from God, like Abraham and Isaac, and he just wanted to see if I'd be willing to do it. And... And so he's probably start paddling back to the boat and, you know, throw a rope to me, guys. And then, boom, fish comes and takes him. That's, that's how I picture it. I don't know. Um, I don't know if the sailors got to see this, the fish or not. We're not told. They may have been off the horizon. I, I don't know. But he's dog paddling and this fish comes and gets him. We'll see that in a moment. But the storms continue until you stop running from God. We can, again, have smooth sailing when we first go our own way, but in life may look rosy and good and everything seems to just be working out, but, uh, but the storms will come. And those storms are sent by God as His mercy to us to let us face our con- the consequences of our disobedience and to lead us to the place of repentance and turning. And, and our voyage into sin may start celebratory, but it ends in misery. It always does. As we said last week, we always sin downward. It doesn't get better and better the more we sin. And I think we can all, all uh, 
relate to that. We know this from experience. We know this from Scripture. And yet we still, um, we still are deceived by the tempter to pursue it. We think it's going to be better next time. And it never is. So God's at work here. He's pursuing Jonah and, 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 he, and, in the, and these sailors' lives, it seems. Verse 16, Then the mere feared the Lord. Men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So that, uh, this is Yahweh, that the, 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 the one that they're fearing and worshiping here. So Jonah's bobbing up and down in the water, and there's revival that's breaking out on this boat, it seems. And so these guys are just now turned from these idolaters, and they're enthusiastically worshiping in whatever form, to whatever extent this is true worship, we don't know. But they're worshiping the one true God. And, and again, what a, what a picture. <laughs> Once idolaters a few moments ago worshiping the Lord on the boat, here's this prophet of God just bobbing out in the water. And then lastly, how does in God's pursuit of us, relentless pursuit of us, he, he reveals his grace in the midst of judgment. He reveals his grace in the midst of judgment. This is the part of Jonah that we know best. This is what we tend to focus on. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, the text doesn't say that uh, God created this great fish. It just says that he appointed the great fish. So it seems to be already swimming around. It doesn't say it, it was a whale. It could have been a whale. The Bible doesn't classify uh, you know, whales as, as mammals like we do. That It's sea creatures. That's fish. And so we don't, we don't know. But I, I just imagine the Lord saying to this great fish, I've got a job for you. Yes, sir. And... Gives him the little GPS coordinates and, and says, you know, be there precisely at this time. Yes, sir. And there's going to be a guy flopping in the water in front of you. And I want you to swallow him whole, but don't chew him up. And, and then I'll give you further instructions at, at a later time. Yes, sir. Got it. And it goes off the fish. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not saying that conversation happened. But, but what we do see, everything and everyone else in this story obeys God better than Jonah. Everything else is obeying him, doing these pagan sailors, these fish, the waves, the wind. Everything's obeying him, but Jonah is not. We tend to focus on the fish. We get all worked up about the identity of this and what kind of fish and all of that. That's not really the point. What matters is who sent it. And who sent the great fish? The same person who arranged for the boat to be in Joppa. The same person who caused the storm. The same person who arranged for the lot to fall on Jonah. God God did all of it. Why did he send the fish? Certainly to rescue him physically, because uh, he would have drowned in the sea, which is what Jonah expected to do. If he, But also to turn him around, to bring him, to bring change, to bring repentance, and to, and to pursue other people, to pursue the Ninevites, to send jo- Jonah back into that mission. God will do whatever it takes. And he will extend grace and help and protection in the midst of our disobedience. It just includes just a couple things. One, it's never too late to stop running from God. If that's you this morning. Don't wait for a storm. Don't wait for a great fish. Second, for those of you who are near to a prodigal... And so just console yourself with this thought as you think about the prodigals in your life that your heart breaks for. Just a couple things. One, God knows where they are, even if you don't. God knows what they're doing. God knows how to reach them. 
and forth, God knows how to bring them back. Your hope is in Him. Between now and then, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing. Don't lose heart. You start getting the fatted calf ready. Put him out the pasture and fatten that thing up for when the prodigal returns and you can have a feast. Believe, trust in God. And if it's not in this life, it will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will rejoice. And he will hold us fast. He will not let us go. So we are Jonah when we resentfully run. We need God who resent, re, re, relentlessly pursues us. I want just to, in the closing seconds here, just put this chapter alongside of this table. We've been seeing about God here. There are similarities and and, and, the, and between Jonah and Jesus, and yet those similarities really highlight the differences. Jonah's life points to the real prophet, to the real Savior. Matthew 12, Jesus makes this explicit, that he was a prophet like Jonah. His death and resurrection are, a, are, are the fulfillment of the sign that was given through Jonah. So just as Jonah was cast into the sea and the sea became calm he was swallowed by a fish, taken down into the depths of the ocean for those three days and three nights, and yet he was brought back to the land of the living. Jesus says, this is, this is pointing to me. Jesus was cast into the ocean of God's wrath at the cross. This great storm of God's furious judgment for our sin became calm when he was. And he was in the heart of the earth for three days, and like Jonah, he was resurrected. Jesus makes that connection for us. The big difference, of course, is that Jonah went through all of that involuntarily. That willingly because of our disobedience. Jonah did everything right, or Jonah did everything wrong, and Jesus did everything right. Jonah did not want to do God's will. Jesus delighted to do everything the Father asked of him. Jonah ran from his enemies in anger. Jesus ran toward us in love. Jonah slept in the boat during the storm to escape. and While everybody else was panic-stricken, Jesus slept in the boat through a storm with his panic-stricken disciples around because he fully entrusted himself to God and surrendered himself to his will. Jonah ends up taking the role of a scapegoat. He's tossed into the sea to die so that the sailors can live. It's substitution, reluctant substitution, mind you, but substitution. Well, Jesus, in an infinitely greater way, fulfills the role of the scapegoat. He died that we might live. He accepted total condemnation in our place. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jonah could do nothing he could give his life so that those guys could live physically. He could not give his life for the sins of those sailors. Jesus did what Jonah could never do. And he gave his life for us and died for our sins.